This is the Revenue with Real Estate podcast, helping you understand the real risks and rewards of profitable real estate investing so that you can lead a life that you love. Are you ready to talk some real estate investing? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Revenue with Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Doug Myers. And on this edition of the show, we have two topics that we are focusing on with our guest. They are the business of real estate investing and understanding the money game for real estate investing with my guest, Danielle Chason. Danielle Chason is a serial entrepreneur known for her work in the field of real estate investing in residential redevelopment and rental housing. Focused in Ontario, her many projects have ranged in scope from light cleanups to full renovations, as well as legal duplex, triplex conversions, and multi-unit flips. She works as a general contractor, managing various trades and staff, while also managing her businesses. She fills her days operating those multiple businesses, underwriting properties, balancing finances, managing rental properties, and endlessly educating herself. She is also a licensed real estate broker in Ontario and a member and contributor of several real estate education organizations. Danielle is passionate about business and real estate, as you'll find out in our conversation, and she shares her experience and knowledge with other investors through speaking engagements and various online platforms, including this podcast, and is very excited about relaunching her coaching program in the fall of this year. In our conversation, again, we're centering this around two main topics, that is the business of real estate investing and understanding the money game for real estate investing. Danielle shares her investing origin story, why she got started in real estate and why she started with flips, but shifted to buy and hold acquisitions once COVID started, how to work your way through the real estate investing fog. This is great for investors who are just starting out and figuring out what investing strategies could work best for you. From there, we move into that first topic, which is understanding the business of real estate investing. We talk about how to adapt your business model based on changing conditions, how to approach your real estate investing with the mindset of treating it like a business, because it is, the elements of setting up your real estate investing business, how the office supports the field and why they must grow together if you want to scale, why you should get an assistant and examples of what you can have them do and tips for scaling a portfolio sustainably. After that, the second half of the conversation really focuses on understanding the money game. And there are going to be so many insights in here to shift your perspective on how you see money and how you use it within real estate. We start off by getting Danielle's definition for what the money game in real estate investing is all about. From there, we get tips from Danielle on how she's created a network of private lenders and how you can do the same to help grow your business. And the key here is to educate them on what it is you're doing and how you can help them. We talk about debt and credit and how if used correctly and by understanding good debts, bad debts, and leverage, you can really grow your real estate investing business and improve the health of your financial picture over time. A big thank you to Danielle for joining us here on the show. This was a great conversation. I know you are going to learn a lot about the money game, about how to set up your real estate investing business and run your real estate like a business as a generous additional offer. 
Danielle has provided us with a link specific to this show where you can book a one-on-one call with her if you'd like. We've got that in the show notes there. It's at her Calendly. That's calendly.com slash strategic success slash revenue dash intro dash call. I recommend that you just look at the show notes. It's a lot easier than piecing that together. That's it. Okay, let's get into the show here with Danielle Chason on the Revenue with Real Estate podcast. Enjoy. Danielle, welcome to the show. Pleasure to have you here. Pleasure to be here, Doug. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for taking the time to join us. I, I think just as as we like to do with introductions on the show, let's start out with just getting to know who you are within the real estate investing space. Yeah, well, um, as you said, my name is Danielle Chason, and I've been investing in real estate for quite some time. Bought my first property when I was uh, 26 and 27, actually, and um, did a little bit of house hacking there. It was just a bungalow with an in-law suite in the basement, so we rented out the basement. And uh, yeah, I mean, since then, um, I bought a couple of properties and I thought I knew what I was doing. And, uh, you know, when you're a landlord, you think you've got it figured out cause you own a property and, and you're renting it out and you're making money and you're like, woohoo, I got this figured out. So in 2013, I decided to go into real estate as a career, um, did some coaching, uh, with, a with a company down in the States, did a lot of, a lot of, um, education and training with them and did a lot of conferences. I was probably down there every six weeks for a four to six day conference. And uh, honestly, um, thought I knew everything when I was a landlord. Well, I knew nothing. So what (laughs) happened essentially is I dedicated two years going back to school, quote unquote, um, in our space, as you know, and as your viewers obviously know, because they're here listening to the podcast, getting some education. Um, It's informal education. It's not your conventional type of education where you go to school. Um, you go to conferences and you go to networking events and you, you know, pay for coaching and you listen to podcasts and you get that education. So I legitimately did two years of my life and I called it going back to school, spent a ton of money um, to learn my craft and decide what realm of real estate I wanted to go into and decided I wanted to flip. And um, 2015 bought my two first flips and then I spent five years flipping. And then uh, fast forward to COVID we had a construction shutdown here in Ontario for the first wave of COVID, um, which slowed me down long enough to realize that that wasn't the path I actually wanted to go on. I didn't want to own a business and flipping is an income generating business. It's you trade time for money. And um, it was getting painful selling the, the properties actually. And I was doing duplex conversions at that point and keeping them. So I realized I wanted to go into the buy and hold and I always knew I wanted to go into the apartment building space. So that's the space I've gone into now. So I wrapped up the flips that I had on the go, sold the ones that I had in the pipeline to other investors. And um, by the end of 2020, had wrapped up my flipping business and um, built a team with partners um, to do acquisitions. And that's what we're doing now. Simply buy and hold. Mm-hmm. Right on. Now, just for a couple of context questions, you're, you said you're based in Ontario. Where, whereabouts in Ontario are you? So I'm west of the GTA. I'm in Milton, Ontario. That's okay. where I live, not where I invest. Okay. When I was flipping houses, um, because I was very hands-on and I managed all the trades, I GC'd all my projects. Um, what I did was, as I had, well, actually, you learn by your mistakes, right? So, um, you know, if you don't learn something when you make a mistake, 
then uh, it was all done in vain. So my first flip was in Sarni, or sorry, in Port Hope, which is about two hours from where I live. And then my second flip was in Sarnia, and that was two and a half hours from where I live. And so managing the trades um, and building a team in those markets, like just building a team takes time. And so I realized, well, I'm not going to be going back to these markets. And I put a ton of work in finding the right people for what I'm doing. Um, and it's just too much time being on the road to try to go check on them and deal with issues and whatnot. So I ended up settling in Hamilton. So I live in Milton uh, and ended up doing flips in Hamilton. That's where I settled and built a, a good strong network there. Uh, in the beginning, especially, I spent a lot of time in Hamilton probably every day, um, you know, vetting properties, you know, shopping for properties and then managing the projects. But then um, as time went on and I started trusting my team, I could pull away a little bit. Um, and then from start to finish, I mean, there's a, there's a lot long process that goes into flipping. It's not just the construction. You have to walk through the properties, find those properties. And so, um, yeah, I, once I trusted the realtor, I started buying property properties blind. He knew what I was looking for. Um, and then once my trades had done a couple of jobs for me, they knew kind of my standards and how I like things done. And so I started going less and less, but, um, but it was still very time consuming. So, um, yeah, so that's why, I just found it hard to kind of get into the buy and hold while I was doing that because it was very time consuming. But yeah. yeah, so I live in Milton. That was probably the long way to get to your answer. Hey, <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. I live in Milton. But, uh, but yeah, uh, flipped in Hamilton. But now that I'm doing acquisitions, I go where the numbers make the most sense for long-term investing. So um, I do invest further away from where I live and eventually we'll get outside the province of Ontario. But for now, I'm just keeping it to Ontario until we really dial in our systems. I'm still only about, you know, I, I want to say um, we really didn't start doing because I needed to build the team and we needed to meet and kind of organize the structure of the businesses and whatnot. And um, we really didn't start till the beginning of 2021. So as a team, so we're still kind of dialing in everything that we want it being May of 2021. Now we're kind of five months in. Um, and so we're just, you know, still dialing in everything. But once we really have a clear picture of um, our structure, which we're pretty much there now, we'll be able to then I, I, we really want to go into the states and, and other provinces as well, where the numbers and the uh, competition is maybe a little bit more attractive. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. There's many questions that I have coming out of this already. <laughs> One of the things that you said was that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you said it was becoming painful to sell yeah. these flips. Can you yeah. elaborate on, on what you mean by that? Okay, so when you see the potential for um, building wealth, and then you're selling so like when you're when you have a house and you put like a lot of sweat time and effort and you pour your heart into renovating a house that takes you from start to finish. I mean, you're looking, you know, four to six months at, at minimum. I did full, like my flips, by the way, an average flip for me was $80,000, $90,000. So they weren't small flips. So mm -hmm. um, I know there's a lot of people out there that'll do flips for twenty to 30000 I mean, they leave the appliances they do. But I did like nice flips um, because, and that's a lot my pride. And that's also another reason, like for me, flipping wasn't my, it wasn't best suited for me for that strategy, just because um, you know, I just wasn't willing to cut corners. I wasn't willing to, you know, leave used appliances and, and my pride just wouldn't allow me to do that. And I didn't want to hire somebody to do kind of lesser of a job on my behalf 
because again, my pride. So it just wasn't the right strategy for me. But what I will say is that we go down our journey, we take our real estate journey, go down the path that we need to take. And everything that I learned over the five years of flipping made me who I am today and gave me the tools and able to, to be able to do what I'm doing today. So like now, you know, I'm turning over buildings, the multi-unit buildings instead of uh, a house. Now I wouldn't have had the confidence or the knowledge really to be able to do that properly five years ago. So I don't regret it, but it did become painful because um, I just spent so much time and I just thought the return on my time wasn't there. I knew that you know, for all the time that I dedicated to my education, I should be doing something bigger and better. And so, um, I don't know, I just selling the house after doing everything and then knowing that I was doing the duplexes and keeping them and that was generating a much better return for me long term. I just didn't like the short term outcome for flipping a house where I saw the flip side of it with the long term outcome of a duplex. So, you know, like a duplex conversion, you know, which is, you know, kind of, um, it's kind of a blend of flipping, burring and conversions, you know, where, you know, that had a much better return. I'm like, okay, well, I can do those all day long and it'll be way more beneficial to me than doing quick flips for quick dollars. So that's where the kind of the pain came from. Plus I never got to enjoy the fruits of my labor. So now I'm flipping a five unit building um, and I'll get to keep it. So I'll get to actually enjoy it after I'm done instead of selling it for, you know, for a few dollars. Like, I, I don't know. I just, mm -hmm. that's where the pain kind of came in. Gotcha. Okay. And that's kind of what I thought was the case, but I'm like, okay, let's, let's hear the story behind this. There's something behind this for sure. And it's funny because I, I've almost like just personally to relate to that, I've done the opposite of it. I spent the first few years of my real estate investing going for the wealth building. I wanted to get my foot in the door. I wanted to get the the principal pay down on a mortgage going for me first. And then I realized that I if I wanted to leave my job, that was just my personal thing, that I needed to create more of an income source. And so I got into flipping <laughs> as a partner, right, to to generate a little bit more income just as opposed to cash flow from properties. So it's yeah. funny. Uh, and I bring it up because there are so many different ways to uh, skin a cat within real estate, as it were, to decide what's right for you at a given moment and to be able to shift gears. Because like you were saying, what you learned flipping properties is now helpful for what you're doing with multifamily, right? A hundred percent. And you know what, and this is what I tell my students ultimately. So when I first went to the States and started educating myself, I mean, I wanted to do everything. I was squirreling all over the place because the education that I was getting was based on multiple strategies. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to do that. Oh yeah, I'm going to do that. Oh yeah, I'm going to do that too. So there was wholesaling and then there was flipping and then there was investing in turnkey properties in the States with a partner, um, affiliate partner of my coaches down there. Um, there was private lending. There was, there was so many different things. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, oh, investing in the States, which was another one, you know? And I was, I like, I'm like, oh yeah, I'll do that. And I'll do that. And I'll do that. And, you know, I legitimately was in a real estate fog for about six months with information overload. And so this is what I tell all of my students with, when I do my workshops, when I speak in front of like real estate groups and stuff, you know, I always tell them at the end of the day, Real estate is like a universe full of stars. And what you have to do is you need to travel that universe and sit on each star long enough to know whether or not that's for you or not. And then 
you know, um, there's some people that I know that my students that have come to me and they started flipping and I'm like, I just don't think it's the right strategy for you. And they're like, why? I tell them why, but they're so dead set on it. I said, okay, you got to do one. Like you got to do one. You got to do one, figure it out. I know the work that goes into flipping. It's not easy. Mm -hmm. And so everybody, it's, everybody thinks it's sexy. Everybody thinks it's quick and easy. And there's a lot of things that they don't know behind the scenes that happen. Even when I tell them, they're like, no, 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 I can handle it. I got it. I got it. Well, you got a full-time job. It's a little bit time consuming. Like there's a little bit more work involved. So, but you know what, when they're set on it, you know what, sit on that star, do the flip, figure it out if it's for you or not, and then move on. And, and I tell people, you just got to kind of explore that real estate universe and then settle on the star or two in that real estate realm that is best suited to you. And we all have to travel that journey. And our journeys are all very unique to ourselves based on who we are, where we are in life, what resources we have, what our risk tolerance is. There's so many factors that come into play. Um, There is no two paths alike. And so you just got to travel your own path for sure. Mm -hmm. I think that's incredible advice. That's so good. So thank you. Thank you for saying that. Because yeah, you're right. It can be really easy, especially at the outset to hear about all these different strategies and be like, oh, I'm going to do a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of that. And then before you know it, you're six, 12 months down the line, you haven't done anything and you're still wondering, okay, what's, what's the right choice for me? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. man, that's so relatable. And same thing for me, just doing, doing different types of deals and recognizing, hey, this is for me or this is the right location for me, right? Um, a lot of people want to invest in their backyard, but it's not maybe as good for them as it could be to say invest somewhere else where maybe they can get a better return or something like that, right? So very interesting. Good good advice. If I, if I can just intervene right there. Go for because it. I want to highlight something you just mentioned. Um, we do tend to get we, – we, we marry an idea in our heads and then we get stuck on it. And everybody goes through this at some point. Um, I am naturally a very fluid person. Um, I don't know that most people are, I do, I can be very flexible and change with the times. And so when something doesn't seem to be working for me, I'm able to to pivot from that and shift very quickly where most people don't. So what happens is you go into a networking room and you see somebody on stage and they say this, this is what they, they are doing. And this is the strategy they're implementing and this is how the outcome is for them. And then somebody in the room sees what they're doing and they go to try to implement it. It doesn't work, but they get married to that idea that that's what it looks like. That's how it's supposed to look like. And it should be in this market. And then they're unable to pivot from that. And so I just want to, something you brought up, the reason why I kind of interrupted there, Doug, and I apologize for that, but I think it's so important for people to understand that you have to be fluid in this industry because this industry is constantly changing. So your business model today will look very differently than it does 12 months from now. And 12 months in the bigger scheme of things is a very, very small period of time in the realm of our lifetime. And so, and even in the, you know, in context of our business lifetime. So um, you think, okay, in 12 months can't change that much, but it does. Oh, it does. Because you're constantly changing. You're either changing the way you're running numbers. You're changing the market you're in. You're changing the type of property you're buying and selling or buying and holding or burring. You're changing um, um, the, the type. Maybe it's residential. Now you're going to commercial. People that were in commercial because of COVID are now coming into residential. So like it's just constantly changing. And so you really just have to embrace that. And if it's outside of your comfort zone to change that much, 
then you have to practice that and, you know, build that muscle for that tolerance. You really do need to change because if not, and I just had a conversation with a, you know, with a, um, I don't want to say a student, um, maybe a mentee, I would call her out in, uh, out West in Alberta. And she's like, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work. I go, well, you're going to have to change something, either change how you're running the numbers. You got to change the market, change the type of property you're looking for, but something isn't working for you in that market with that property type. And so you're going to have to make a shift because the definition of insanity is to <laughs> keep doing the same thing over and over and again and expecting a different result. And that's what she was doing. And I'm like, you're really going to have to broaden your horizons or explore different parameters. Um, and so that's what she's doing now, which um, she's getting great results because of it. Mm -hmm. For sure. I think you presented a good enough segue for us to kind of move into talking about some of the business aspects behind real estate, just before we even started here, I was commenting on your shelves behind you and how uh, organized yeah. everything appeared to be. And I was like, <laughs> damn, I wish I had shelves like that. Um, but yeah, like, can you, I, I'm really getting the sense from, you know, our previous conversation and also in this conversation that you, you really have either learned or originally approached your real estate investing with a keen sense of this is a business, I'm going to operate it as such. Can you kind of elaborate on, you know, yeah, was that something that you came in to real estate with or have you developed it over time with with the coaching and the different things that you did from an education standpoint? Because I, I'm really getting the sense here that you, you take this, um, well, you should take it seriously as a business. And that's what I want to uh, encourage our audience to be aware of as well. This isn't just like a hobby that you do you got to approach it the right way. So the undercurrent to your question here, Doug, is truly mindset. And uh, I mean, that that can be a podcast in itself for a different day that I mean, I can talk about mindset for days. But ultimately, you're 100% right. When I decided to go into real estate as a career, that's exactly what I said, I'm going to go into real estate as a career. And then when I did all the conferences in the States, to me, I viewed that as my education. I didn't view it as a conference. I was getting education. I was getting training so that I could um, so that I could um, put myself in a position to build a successful business. Um, you're 100 right. Now, there's a lot to business that you know you don't know what you don't know until you get in there, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, and I think the biggest thing for me going into it as a business was, um, you know, learning the money game behind it. So there's a huge money game behind, especially real estate businesses that nobody ever talks about. And I would love for people to talk more about the money game behind it. Um, but, you know, again, that's probably for another day. That's another monster. But coming back to your question about building a business, my, um, the father of my children who we were with for um, 12 years, uh, I worked in, he was a contractor and I worked in his office. And so I did see the business model from a business owner's point of view. So I, I was blessed with having that exposure. And that also gave me a level of comfort to go out and do it myself because I did a lot of the work in the office. So um, having that experience paired with my, um, my OCD for being organized, hence, you know, these filing, you know, inboxes in the, in the back there that you see, um, it, it really, it really set the stage for me to be able to be organized within my business. And what people don't understand in a business like this, we have, we have the office and then we have the field. 
And so John being a contractor, I understood that when I went and started my own business. So the field has to support, um, has to lean on the office and the office has to support the field. And one can't grow faster than the other. So what happens a lot, like what's happening right now in my business since I've pivoted is that we're buying and buying properties, but we're not, the, the office part of it and the organization behind it is struggling to keep up. So I've, I've created four businesses since I started this in January with my partners. And so like just setting up those businesses and getting the digital files organized and how are we going to communicate and all of that, like, that's just like, we're, we're staying on top of it, but I feel like we're just keeping our head above the water right now, you know, and then we need to build websites. We need to build systems behind it. We need to build, you know, and so, uh, but here I am, I'm going out there and buying the properties. We're doing renovations. I'm dealing with contractors. One of the properties we bought, we bought a portfolio of uh, five properties, which was 12 doors. And um, out of those ones, uh, and we added another one, which was a duplex. Um, so six properties and, and that duplex were converting into a triplex. So um, out of that duplex, one unit was empty. There was one unit that was, um, that was occupied. And so I made a deal with the occupied unit to move out. And so now I have an empty property that I'm triplexing. So now I'm working on that. We've got that fiveplex that I was telling you about that I'm turning over. And so here I am out in the field and I'm starting all this stuff. And then the office part of it, we're just trying to stay organized and make sure we've like back to the money game, make sure we've got the money to cover all this stuff that we're doing. And like, there's a whole, there's a lot going on behind the scenes. And so um, I think just understanding, you need to be able to go into this knowing that if you're going to scale, that there are two parts to owning a business, there's the field, and then there's the admin part, and they have to complement each other, and they have to grow together. You can't ignore one without the other. So like, you can go out there and flip properties and do all kinds of stuff, but you're going to get buried under paperwork, you're going to get buried under invoices, you really have to be organized in order to do that. And if you have to, um, if you have to hire somebody to come in part time once a week, even just to file your papers and make sure that you're okay. I mean, I had a bookkeeper that came into my house every two weeks and made sure that I was on track and I could do some reporting and see where I was at. So you need to implement something to help you so that you can do what you're doing. And ultimately, um, you know, you have to invest into your business, not just into yourself, but you do have to invest into your business and hiring help is definitely one of them. I mean, we hire contractors to do the work. Why aren't we hiring people in our office? Right. Mm -hmm. your job is not to file. It's not, that's not the highest and best use. Right. So I, I don't know why people wait so long to hire an assistant. I don't understand it. I mean, I went into business having an assistant, like I started before I, I had an assistant before I was making money. So, um, and that was key. I'm telling you. And that's why I have all this stuff behind me that you see me being organized. I, I know I needed that. I knew that. Mm -hmm. Just a quick point on that. What would you have an assistant do just for somebody who's listening to this and saying like, oh, well, I, you know, I've owned a, I own a few properties, but I, I don't, I don't even know what to give them. What are some examples of things that you would give to an assistant if you have one? I'll tell you what my assistant is doing for me today. Right sure. now I'm yeah. having tech problems. And so I'm trying to connect Google and iOS because I'm trying to work on the organization. The challenge that I'm having now with my businesses is now we're all remote because I have partners. So before I could keep everything internally. So now I'm using 
I'm transferring everything over to Google because it's a better collaboration tool than Dropbox. And so I'm moving everything to Google, but I was Dropbox and iOS before. And these are just platforms, tools that I use within my business. And so, um, so I, like I said, I'm shifting over to Google just because it's a better collaboration tool and trying to get everything to integrate. Now, after two days of trying to fight and figure this out, she says to me today, do you want me to just see if there's any IT people that we could hire in the area? And I'm like, oh my God, yes, please. <laughs> so, you know, um, at the end of the day, you know, I'm in it and I'm dealing with it and, and not able to be outside of the box that I'm in and see it. And so she came up with it because I was in the trenches. So I couldn't see beyond further beyond what I was looking at. And yeah, and she said to me, so what she's doing today, um, just prior to us recording this call, actually, um, she's uh, vetting and searching for me, what she does typically when we look for contractors or anybody to hire, um, what she'll do is she'll get me a short list. So I have a vetting system for her. I don't, you know, I don't want people off Kijiji and stuff like that. So she goes and she gets a short list of trades or service people that I need. And then she'll print out that cert, that list, which is three to five people. And then I call and I hire who I want. So that's what she's doing right now today. I'm also doing um, my property walkthroughs on the weekend. And so she's prepping all the paperwork for me. She's working on that this week. I've got um, two lease renewals and a new lease also that is um, coming up. And so she gets all of that paperwork ready for me, sets it up in DocuSign for signature and then sends it to me, I review it. So she does all of that. And then all the filing back here, like the stuff that needs to be filed um, with COVID now, she comes in maybe once every two weeks, but she comes in and she files everything. So when I check my mail, I go through my mail and then anything that needs to be filed gets filed into these little inboxes that I have. Um, and then she, she'll come in and she'll pick them up and actually put them in the hard copy files. Um, she, I have, um, promissory notes and term sheets that I've done with, um, partners recently on these acquisitions. Um, and she, um, I have a pile here for her to scan and save that stuff to Dropbox. Um, sorry to Google drive now. Um, so she scans and saves all my digital copies of things. Um, if I'm looking for, I need an appraiser for property that we're closing on in June. Um, so she's, you know, again, vetted for me. I do the work as far as vetting the trades, but she does a lot of the R&D for me. Um, and then she does a lot of the admin stuff. So she takes care of all of that. Um, and then some, like she does a lot for me. Like, and it's pretty much, if I were to put it this way, she takes care of my to-do list like all of my admin stuff that I need to take care of so that I can deal with the higher level stuff, which is, um, <clears throat> um, you know, vetting a tenant, putting a tenant in one of my properties or hiring a property manager, you know, she'll get me the short list to the management companies in a new market that I'm vetting. Um, and then I'll go in and I'll interview those property managers. Right now I'm vetting for a new accountant. So She's actually setting that appointment up for me. So she manages my calendar as well. Um, I, between the two of us, I also do that. But she does uh, manage my calendar when people need to reach out for me. When we do closings on properties, she communicates a lot with the lawyers. And here's a funny one. She also looks at my emails because I'm terrible with emails. I don't even like, I don't want to say a word that's inappropriate to your audience, but it's terrible. That's all I got to say. Like, I am terrible with emails and I have been known to miss emails. So she actually goes into my inbox every 
you know, once a day maybe and reads them, make sure that there's nothing important there that I might've missed. So. Mm -hmm. So if I could pull out from that, it sounds like she's doing a lot of the tasks that you either don't want to do or, or would be considered kind of uh, a teachable tasks within your business so that you're allowing yourself to go out and do the things that maybe only you can do or are the real higher income generating tasks. That'd be fair to say. Fair to say, but if I could comment on one thing that you said, which I think is a common misconception that small business owners have myself included is that there is no task that only I can do. Everybody is replaceable, period. And as soon as we understand that, then the easier it becomes to hire people to do certain jobs. I decided not to scale my flipping business because I didn't want to hire a project manager. That's because I didn't want to give that type of liability into somebody else that had, you know, that, that, that would have been responsible for my business. Essentially, if they ended up missing something or allowed the contractor to do something and somebody got hurt on one of my projects, that's just not something I was willing to take on. I was not willing to take on that kind of liability by delegating that. So I chose not to, but that doesn't mean I couldn't hire a property manager to do the job. It's mm -hmm. not that I was doing it because nobody else could. Of course, there's other people that could. I just did not want to allow somebody else to carry my liability on my behalf for something that I felt was so important because I just think that um, it's just a risk that I didn't want to take. And yeah. so as a real estate investor, like my mindset, I've said this so many times and it's so ingrained into me. And I think this is what influenced that decision. My number one priority is to reduce, reduce risk and limit liability. My number one job is to protect my investors. And when I was flipping houses was to protect the person that was buying the end product. I wanted to make sure it was done right and that they didn't get screwed in the end. And so, um, you know, that's just how I am. And that's just kind of the entire time. Have you ever played poker? Yeah, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one once or twice. <laughs> yeah, I tried. Tried to play poker. I'm, um, I'm not I'm not great at uh, the faces. Well, you know, the thing is, though, is that we get carried away with poker. Like, you know, we, we have we start with $100 or whatever it is you start with. And that's called your pot. And then you play a few hands, you play a few hands, you know, you make 20 here, you make 12 there, you make 30 there and you build up this little pot. And maybe you're up to 250. Um, but, you know, it, it can be gone in an instant with a bad decision. You know, um, it takes forever to build that pot because it's rare that you get a big, you know, um, you get a home run and you get a huge pot and triple it. It's really hard to do. Um, but it takes forever. You could get there. It's not to say you can't take a hundred and turn it into three and triple it. Um, but it, it's just typically you're going to have to work hard to get there. Real estate is the same way. I mean, you build, you start with something and then you build on that and then you keep building a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, but one bad decision could really cost you everything. And so, or a big chunk of it at the very least. And so um, I kind of look at it like that. I, my number one job is to protect my pot. I don't want to make a bad mistake and lose everything. And so that's, again, like I said, that's just my number one job. So um, my day job is to build the pot, but my priority is to protect the pot. And so I always just kind of look at it like that. 
Um, because you can lose everything in an instant. Like it could be gone very quickly. It, it, I mean, so easily, I mean, let me, like an extreme example would be, you know, people that rent out illegal suites. If you, if something happens, and this did happen in Toronto, where a guy rented a suite in a basement and he had, uh, because it's Toronto, so he had bars on the, on the windows in the basement. So you could open the window, but you couldn't get out of the window. There was no window of egress. Um, long story short, fire happened. A 22-year-old girl, a university student died. Um, and he ended up losing everything and is in jail. And so, because he was criminally negligent. So, you know, it, it's just not worth making a few dollars a month off of that unit um, to, you know, to risk everything you have. So I tend to, you know, I do things the right way. Um, I'm a huge advocate about being a responsible landlord, um, treating people right. And I just think you don't need to cut corners. Personally, I just want to sleep at night, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I mean, it could be something as easy as, you know, you do a bad flip and something happens. You didn't, you know, properly, you took out a wall, but it was, you didn't get permits and that was a support wall. Then all of a sudden, you know, you saw that flip and then that floor caves and crashes on a four-year-old child and, and that child gets hurt. And then, you know, you get sued for that. Right. So, I mean, there's so many different ways that it could go badly. If it goes badly in real estate, it goes really bad. Like it's, we're not talking a few hundred dollars. And so you're going to get, you could get critically hurt financially if you don't do things right in real estate, even, um, in business, you know, when you don't have the proper shareholder agreements with your partners, if you don't have the proper structure, if you don't have the contracts with your contractor or JV partner, you say, yeah, let's JV out of house, but then everything goes sideways. And then, you know, each partner is looking at each other going, well, it's not my fault. It's your fault. Oh, it's not my house. It's your house. The house is under your name. It's not my responsibility. You know, like there's just so many ways that um, it can go sideways. So that's my number one job really in real estate is just to protect my pot, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Due diligence, that extra 10% goes a long way. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, the problem with that is that it's not a problem until it's a problem. And so it's not yep. a fire and we tend to, you know, put our time and energy into the biggest fire that's burning in front of us today. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, one of these ish, like, you know, doing a shareholder agreement or a contractor agreement, it's not a problem as long as everybody's getting along. Right. So yeah. they're like, okay, well, I don't need to do that. You know what? We're good. We get along. We're, you know, we're friends. We, we're not going to screw each other. And, um, and then all of a sudden things go sideways. Well, you're not going to agree to anything when you're in the middle of a battle. Mm -hmm. Making emotional decisions. That's not a good place to become a good decision maker. No good decisions 100%. have been made emotionally. You mentioned earlier about the money game of real estate. And I just wrote this down as something that I wanted to go in a bit further because it actually tied in with some of the other notes that I had here. When when you say money game of real estate, that's that's a big, I know there's a big, uh, <laughs> there's a lot behind that curtain. If you could provide a little bit of um, uh, almost a summary of what you mean by that. And then I've got a couple of notes as to where I want to take it in regards to borrowing um, private money and you know financing deals because I think that's going to be really relatable to to this audience. So let's start there. What, what do you mean by the money game of real estate? Well, one of my biggest pet peeves, and, uh, and this is something that I'm going to undertake when I'm not so involved in my business, um, but one of my biggest pet peeves is that in our education system, we don't have proper financial literacy and people don't understand money or finances. They know math. Yep. They're two very different things. And so 
when you're dealing with money and business, you got to understand certain concepts and, and, and be able to apply them. So um, the power of points, it's something that I teach, I think, in every single one of my classes that I do, because I think it's so important. Um, and I think every podcast I do, I probably bring this up, but it's the power of 72, which is not a hard number. It's a guide, but it's the, the, the rule of 72. It's, you know, um, how long it's going to take for you to double your money based on the interest rate. So you take the interest rate, divide it into 72 and what the number is, that's how long it's going to take you to double your money. So, you know, people are like, oh, I'm getting 4%. I'm good on my mutual fund or whatever, but 4%, you divide that into 72. You know, what are you looking at? You're looking at, um, you know, a long time to double your money. If you're getting 12%, you're going to chop that by into a third of time. You know, and when you look at that, and, and it's hard to explain this, the power of this over a podcast, because I can't give you like a visual, but like in my classes, I actually put out a chart and I say, you know, at 4% and 8% at 12%, this is what it's going to look like after 20 years with hundred thousand dollars. Uh, you can even start it off at $20,000 just to see, like, if I only have $20,000 to invest today, what is it going to look like in 20 years if I have these different points? And so um, the power of points is crazy. That's why, why do you think the banks will fight for a quarter point on a mortgage? Because they know how that impacts their bottom line. It's massive. And that's because of the power of compounding. So anyway, so that's, I mean, that's one of the things. There's a lot of different concepts and just understanding. When you understand, the reason why I bring this up when we're talking about the money game is because once you understand the power of points, then you start playing the money game because then you're like, okay, well, let me see, you know, I don't want to pay 12%. What can it 10%? Well, if I borrow over here to pay that over there, which is a higher interest rate, you know, it's just a few hundred dollars here and a few hundred dollars there that you think you're saving, which is why when you're looking at it from a dollar perspective, you don't get the same impact. Um, so when you start looking at it as a percentage and how the power of points will impact your bottom line, uh, then you start working with that. But then you know, that's just understanding the, you know, the power of points, but then there's um, the value of money, you know, like, okay, you know, why should I fight harder to, to get a better rate for this material? Um, you know, it, it's just a constant thing. And in real estate, we have an added layer where, you know, you're borrowing money. Well, this guy can lend it to you for six months and this guy will lend it to you for 12 months. Well, this guy wants it back you know, and you're constantly moving money around and finding ways to raise money and, and, you know, because it takes money to buy properties at the end of the day, and we all have a limited amount of money. So we're always trying to um, deal with partners, money partners, uh, JV partners, um, you know, it, it, it's just a constant maneuvering and reallocating and restructuring and, and being creative so that you have access to that money at the lowest rate possible so that you can be competitive on the offers that you're putting out there. Mm -hmm. So like if you go to the, let's just take this as an example, because I know there are a good number of investors who are listening to this who borrow private money to go do deals. And they may have it rooted in their mind that, you know, if they're going to go borrow private money, that they have to register a second mortgage on a on a property that they're going to be borrowing somewhere in the neighborhood between uh, 12 and maybe even as high as 16% if they go to some uh, some of the brokers out there that um, they've maybe been become familiar with 
and that that is maybe their only option. Or that they're if they're going to go get a private money uh, first mortgage that they can expect to pay in the neighborhood of 10% and get a loan to value of 65, maybe 75 if they're lucky. Whereas in our previous conversation, it sounds like, you know, I, you know, it's, this is your business. So, you know, share what you're willing to share. Um, you don't play by those rules. You're no, and, and you're, you're getting money at, at better rates. And I why do. I think this is incredible and why I think it's so important is exactly what you just said right now, because as a business owner, it's like, okay, well, you know, we've got an opportunity to go do this deal, whether or not I'm paying 16% or 14% on the money versus offering somebody else who is getting one, 2% on cash sitting in the bank. They just don't know that I'm willing to give them eight or 10. That helps them a huge amount, but it also helps me a huge amount because I'm borrowing at a, at a much lower rate. So how do you create those opportunities for yourself to borrow at reasonable rates so that you can do your business? When you have an understanding of finance, you have an understanding of risk versus reward. When you have taken the time to educate yourself, you can then educate the people that want to lend to you. I can take somebody who's got their money at the bank and are scared and that's why it's at the bank. And they know that they can make better money elsewhere, but they're never going to move their money elsewhere because they don't have that level of comfort. And I'll tell you why they don't have that level of comfort to move their money into maybe a, a self-directed fund and then move the money over to me in a registered mortgage. They're not going to do that because they don't understand the process. People who are scared will not invest with you. I mean, that's the bottom line. So it is your task to educate them and get them a higher level of confidence. Like the one thing that I, like I have a two-day workshop called reverse engineering real estate. We go through different strategies of investing in real estate, but I get into it like right to the meat and bone of things because I know if they understand the process, they're going to make less risks and there are higher likelihood that they're going to implement. Now, everybody out there that's listening has gone to a course and not applied it. I've done it. Um, and a lot of times that's because, um, you know, maybe I decided it's not for me. Maybe I decided I didn't have the time, but a lot of times it's also because I just don't really understand. It. I don't get it. I took a course, but I still don't fully understand it. And so you're not going to move forward with something that you, 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 that there's, you don't understand. So when you're dealing with private money lenders, you should be educating them, not looking for their money. So. Um, there are two types of private money lenders out there. There are ones that are sophisticated and know the game. They've done it. They've been in it for a while. And then there are newbies that want to get into it or maybe started, but don't know much about it. As soon as you start opening up on both of those people, you start opening up about what you know, sharing with them, you know, how, how it works, sharing with them, how you're going to protect their money, sharing with them, your business model, sharing with them, the pros and cons. And I always tell the cons, like, you know, ultimately yeah, I'm a huge advocate for private mortgages. My registered funds are in private mortgages as well. But there are cons to that. Because if you're moving your money over to a self-directed account, and then let's say you lend your money to Danielle, we do a deal, deal's done, I pay you back. Well, now what do you do with that money, right? So if it sits there, I may have given you a good rate, but if it goes back into that account and then you don't have something lined up for it to make money, well, now your annual return, they call it your annual yield, is going to go down. For every you know, day that passes, that, that money's not making money, 
you're losing money. Your annual return decreases. And so I tell people what the pros and cons are. I tell them how they can protect themselves. These are the risks, but these are the rewards, but this is what I can do for you. And this is how I can help you to kind of um, negate those risks, you know? So ultimately, um, you know, like, like when it comes to reallocating, most people with the registered funds, they don't, it's passive. They don't, they want to set it and forget it. And then rather set it at the bank for 4% in a mutual fund than they would do in a self-directed where they got to do a whole bunch of work. So I do a lot of that work for them. And then I reallocate their funds into a different mortgage. So if I do pay them out, I'm going to reallocate that somewhere else. That's my commitment to them because I know I'm also, I'm also a registered mortgage person, uh, sorry, uh, uh, registered funds, private money lender. So, and I know that that's important to me. That's my retirement. I need to make money on that. So when you understand what the needs are of your lender, and then you share with them how you're going to take care of them, protect them from any risk. I think it makes a lot of sense. And you're kind of, you're educating them on the process. You're educating them on the pros and cons. They ultimately have the decision. And I've had some people say no to me. Most people, well, actually, Anybody who said they're not ready has always come or, or, or no has always come back, which is kind of interesting. Um, and some people just want to shake, chase that shiny object. And I've had an investor had that happen. I think it was actually 14%. And then all of a sudden that lender stopped answering or that borrower stopped answering her calls and getting back to her. And then she called me, oh my God, Danielle, what am I going to do? So I kind of coached her around that and, and uh, helped her out a little bit. And then you know, next thing he knew, she's lending that money with me because she's like, okay, well, you know what, that stress was not worth um, sleepless nights for that extra couple of points. I'm going to lend it with you and I know I can sleep. So, um, and ultimately you do want to protect that pot because if you lose 10% of your portfolio, let's say you have a hundred thousand dollars, you lose 10%. And a lot of people do this in the, in the financial markets, by the way. So if the financial markets drop 10%, your portfolio goes down 10%. And then three weeks later, you regain that 10%. Everybody thinks you're at even, but you're actually not. You're actually at 9%. Because if you have $100,000, you lose 10%, you're going to lose $10,000, which takes you to $90,000. Three weeks goes by, you get 10% back, which is 10% of now $90,000, because it's a lesser amount, you've only got $9,000 of that $10,000 back. So you're still down. And, um, you know, off of and that's just to get to zero. So that's personally why I like real estate lending, but um, it's one of the reasons why I prefer. But at the end of the day, to come back to how do I get those lower points is because, well, now, because I have a lot of history and, and um, you know, I mean, I can show what I've done and, and, and people see it. Um, so that obviously helps. But in the beginning, um, it's just by putting people's mind at ease based on the information that I knew, my level of knowledge and sharing with them the process so that they understood what they were doing, what their responsibilities were, what your responsibilities are, and how you're going to protect their money. Because at the end of the day, every investor wants to know, how you, when are you going to pay me back? How are you going to pay me back? And what's the backup plan if you don't have my money? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I kind of put it down to a few notes that I have made there, is, especially in the beginning, is around rapport and relationship and plan. And if you can do those three things, most people, if if they're actually serious about moving forward, are going to be comfortable enough at some point to want to invest with you. Absolutely. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, at the end of the day, here's what, and, and I think this is another thing to your point on rapport, like, and by the way, all three of those things, I tell people all the time, you got to build rapport with the people you work with. Um, and that's building that rapport and working on that um, builds a level of trust. But I'm always telling people to your second point, I'm always telling people that I'm in the relationship business. I'm not in the transactional business. So if you're here to do a transaction, we don't jive. We just don't. I look for people who are looking for long-term relationships. That is my business plan or my business model. Um, I don't work with people that are transactional, plain and simple. The only time I work with people that are transactional will be maybe a realtor on a specific deal that's an MLS listing. I'll see him for that deal and never see him again because he's not my realtor. Um, you know, that's where I, I don't build those relationships. But people within my business my partners, and I do look at my lenders as my partners. Um, I, those are definitely relationships. So um, I 100%, 100% agree with what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, this money game is so interesting to me because, yeah, like you said off the top there, just, you know, not taught in schools. Um, You know, you learn math, you don't learn how to. The only time you learn anything about money is when there's a word problem and it's about, you know, Tammy's got a lemonade stand. She's selling lemonade for five cents and then you realize how dated the textbook is because nobody's selling lemonade for five cents anymore. Let's let's get real. (laughs) Um, At least a dollar, at least a dollar. Uh, So, yeah, it's it's just one of those things. And like, if I if I can point to just something I'm so grateful around around the education that you know getting into the real estate space provided was really learning about money because it mm-hmm. changes the way you look at things like credit it changes the way you look at the products that your bank offers you and how they sell to most people and you know just recognizing something as simple as saying that hey the reason why you've never heard of private lending is because one of the bank's businesses is lending. Why would they why would they tell you to get into the lending game when that's their business? It just doesn't, you know, it just doesn't add up. It's like the fish telling you how to catch them. It's just not gonna happen. Right. So you know, you mentioned credit, if I can, Doug. Yeah, um, go for it. And again, this is exactly what you're saying. Uh, you know, they teach you in society that debt is bad. Debt is bad. And so people like, Oh, if I buy that house, I'm going to be in debt by, you know, $400,000. If I buy that hundred thousand or that $500,000 duplex, and then, you know, to rent it out, but I'm going to put a hundred thousand dollars, my own money in there. And I'm going to borrow for, I'm going to be in debt, $400,000. Like, how's that? No. Cause debt is bad. I don't want any debt. Even getting your own private, your own principal residence, you know, um, you get in debt. That's the first thing that our society dictates, pay down the mortgage, pay down the mortgage, pay down the mortgage. Um, because that debt is bad. Well, what if you took that? Okay. So what if you took that money that is sitting in your home and invested that into a real estate property instead of paying down that debt? Because here's what I'm going to tell you. What people don't understand is that by owning, and this is maybe why I was more, uh, it was getting painful for me to sell the houses and I wasn't wanting, and I was wanting to keep them to, um, to build my wealth is because when people pay you rent, a portion of that rent obviously goes towards the mortgage. Well, the mortgage is split two ways. There's interest that goes to the bank. Thank you for lending your money and allowing me to borrow your money. And the other portion is principal, which starts paying down your debt. That principal payment is not money that you took out of the income you earned and put it into a piggy bank. That 
is money that somebody else earned and is putting in your piggy bank. So every month I have people who put money into my retirement piggy bank every month. And when you start realizing how powerful that is, because somebody is contributing to your savings account, that is your retirement fund. And not only that, so that's just the principal pay down. And as real estate investors, we understand that. But when you can visualize that every month, when you collect that rent, somebody just gave you money to put into your piggy bank, into your savings account. Like I legitimately, when I say this, Doug, I picture a pink piggy, you know, with the little slit on top and my tenants just went and just like put money into it. And that's just my fat little piggy for later, like every month, every month. And I don't touch that, but my piggy, my piggy also eats. So every year there's that equity appreciation. So every year, the value of my property, and this is, you know, honestly, it could go down, but it hasn't in many years. The value of properties are going up and up and up. Say I have a $500,000 property and I'm making 5% appreciation, 5% appreciation on this property. Every year, my piggy ate $25,000 of green grass. Like he's eating and stuffing himself with appreciation, which Mm -hmm. is the grass. So between people stuffing my piggy with, you know, rent dollars, that's my principal pay down and the little piggy eating that appreciation grass, you know, that's like every blade of grass is, you know, um, a dollar and he $25,000 and that's on one property. Imagine, imagine if you have multiple properties, how quickly that'll grow. You know, so um, I don't know. I think if you can visualize that and then you go, oh, and I know I kind of got maybe a little bit graphic there, but the reason why I'm so detailed about that is because honestly, like that, I, when I look at buy and hold, I see a big fat pink piggy bank. Like I, I just can't even, and that drives me because I am anchored to the thought that I am making money in my sleep every day. And that is a fact. I'm not even, you know, I'm not even trying to make it sound whatever, but if you want sexy, flipping isn't it. Buy and hold is it. Because to me, that piggy bank, making money in my sleep is sexy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm just, I'm pulling out my phone here because I wanted to run a, a quick little calculation. I got my... I, for whatever reason, I enjoy it at this point in my life. I get a paper statement from one of my mortgage providers for a property owned in Saskatchewan. Maybe it's because I forgot the online banking password, but whatever. Anyways, this thing comes in the mail. I'm always excited because it shows me the mortgage payment and broken into the principal and interest. And uh, this past month, it just went over $1,200 in principal pay down on, on this property, mm-hmm. right? And so I just ran a quick number here uh, over 30 days in the month of April because that's what the statement was for. It's $40 a day. But this doesn't sound crazy, right? 40 bucks, whatever. You know, an hour of work for somebody who works $40 an hour. And that's that happens every day whether I decided to wake up or I decided to stay in bed, right? And what's so interesting about that is, you, you know, you're talking about 
making money while you sleep. And no matter what happens, that this is this is what's going on. And if you just take that and you picture that over multiple properties, right? Twelve hundred dollars a month is is money that just came in, and I didn't do anything for it. Really, I made a wise decision to invest in a property, and now it goes to work. And if most, 100%. if if we can, you know, this is part of the reason why I do these shows, and I have people like you on, is because I want people to understand that, you know, it doesn't take too many of these good decisions to change the financial landscape of your life. Yes, someone like yourself, you're building a larger portfolio, you run a, a business out of this, you're wanting to help many people. And that's amazing. But for somebody who's also sitting here listening to this going like, hey, I, maybe I just want to own two or three properties. Like if you own two or three properties and and you're like me sitting there getting that mortgage statement, $1,200 a month that's paid down, it's $3,600 a month that's going towards, as Danielle puts it, the the pink piggy bank, you're going to be in a much further place along down the line when it comes time to make some choices around whether or not you want to keep working or um, take the family on a trip or send, you know, pass some money along to a child or, or something like that, right? That's just so many options that can be created by making those good decisions. hundred percent. And, you know, here's the thing. I mean, you can leave your, your, your principal residence. It, it builds equity too, as, as time goes on. And so you can withdraw, like people have money they don't know they have, you know, and the principal residence is number one. Um, that equity, instead of paying down that principal residence and, and always wanting to focus on pay that down, when you're young, you should be building. When you're getting closer to retirement, that's when you start shifting and restructuring. But as you're building your generational wealth or your retirement income or whatever it is you want to call it, your nest egg, um, you know, you want to be doing that when you're young. So you buy a house when you're 25, 30, and then after five years, you have equity in that house. And the problem is a lot of people, and this is a huge problem in our society. What happens is a lot of, a lot of people refinance to pay down credit card debts and vacation debts and other debts, or, you know, they want to do, uh, they want a better, nicer kitchen in their house, or they want to, you know, do the basement of their house, you know, but all of that stuff doesn't make you money. Um, and, you know, the bad debt is the credit cards. And that is like, if there's no other money game, you got to learn first is understanding and recognizing the difference between good debt and bad debt. And again, coming back to the power of points, when you understand, you know, the power of points and how the banks are making 20, 22.99% on the credit cards and you're paying them, yeah, it's going to take you forever to pay that. That's bad debt. The good debt is in the mortgages where you have an asset. If you want to know the difference between good debt and bad debt, ask yourself, is this debt making me money or am I, is it costing me money? And if the question is that it's costing you money, that's bad debt. Get rid of it, figure out a way to get rid of it. And if you have to, by the way, here's, here's a high level way of thinking. I know this seems so simple to a lot of people, but there's going to be a lot of your listeners out there too, that are going to have an aha moment for what I'm about to say. So if you go, you have credit card debt and then you're like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go and pull, you know, from a secure line of credit that I got on my house, I'm going to pull that and pay off all of my credit card debt. Well, it's still debt, Danielle. How is that not bad debt? It's still debt. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to argue with you here where I'm going to say, I would call that good debt. Why is it good debt? Because it's making you money. 
How is that making you money? I'll tell you why. Because you were paying almost 23% on those credit cards. And now on that home equity line of credit or that secured line of credit, you're now paying 8%. The money you've made is not money in your pocket, just like the equity that I'm making or the principal pay down that I'm making on my rental property is not money in my pocket, but it's still money that I've made. So you're just not realizing it as a tangible dollar in your pocket, but it's still money that you made that you don't have to pay out. That bad debt on the credit card was paid off with a good debt and it's still debt, but it's a good debt because now you're paying 8% instead of 23. So you've just made yourself 15% of savings off of the interest that you were paying. Does that make sense? Yep, I'm with you. That's the first step to working your way out of bad debt because sometimes we just need to validate debt. And then we got to practice you know, asking ourselves, is this good debt or bad debt? If it's costing you money, it's bad debt. And actually, um, um, John Lennon, John Lennon once said in the middle of an interview or at the end of an interview, I believe it was, he had said to the interviewer, I'm going to go write me a, I'm going to go write me a swimming pool. And the interviewer was like, what does that mean? Well, because a swimming pool, if he were to go borrow $50,000 to build a swimming pool, is that good debt or bad debt? Is it costing you money or making you money? Seems like that. Costing you money. Right. Hmm. And so what he said is, I'm going to go figure out a way to make that money and not incur debt. So he went and wrote a song that generated income so he could buy a pool. Mm -hmm. So he didn't incur that debt. But we live in a consumer world, in a consumer society shouldn't say world. We live in a consumer society in the Western world here in North America, where we consume everything with debt. And um, I think that's a big part of our problems because we don't understand debt. And that's a part of the money game. Um, I'm part of a mastermind, a Canadian mastermind the other day. And they said, what would you do if you, somebody handed you a million dollars or you won a million dollars, what would you do with a million dollars? And, um, you know, a lot of people are going to go on vacation. They're going to buy a boat. They're going to buy a cottage. They're going to, by the way, a cottage, good debt or bad debt? <laughs> or, guess know, it depends it what you're doing with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave it alone. But yep. again, principal residence, good debt or bad debt? Mm -hmm. Arguable, yep. right? Um, whether it's costing you money or making you money. A principal residence, in my opinion, it's not bad debt. It's not good debt. It's kind of one of those things that mm -hmm. doesn't apply to either because you got to pay to live, right? So but any, in, in any event, um, totally went off on a tangent there. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, the million dollars. If I had a million dollars, what would I do with it? You know, could I go and buy two $500,000 properties free and clear of debt? I could buy cash, rent out two houses at $500,000 each and make, you know, $2,500, $3,000 a month off of each property. I'd have five dollars $6,000 a month in income and be debt free. Mm -hmm. Could I do that? Yeah. 100%. What if, what if I capitalize on the situation and I bought 10 houses at $500,000 each with 20% down, which is $100,000 and um, got five, or 10 houses that was generating $2,500 a month or $3,000 a month. I could be generating $25,000 worth of income as mm -hmm. opposed to $5,000 worth of income. Yeah. And, and I probably would net about the same amount of cash flow. 
But the difference comes because I'm getting that principal pay down. The tenant is putting money into the little slot at the top of the piggy bank. And my piggy is eating that appreciation, grass, stuffing himself. So my net worth would be increasing. See, people get stuck on income and just getting that income and they want to be debt free. So, and that's just because we've been conditioned to think that way in our society. So as soon as you start challenging that way of thinking, I think it opens up more doors. And that comes back to what I was telling you about mindset. Mm-hmm. I fully agree. I think that's a probably a good place to, to, to push pause or push stop. We've, got, we've gone in a number of different directions talking about real estate at the beginning here. Um, but I think, yeah, this, this past 30 minutes here or so just on money is going to really hit home with a lot of people. Um, and start shifting the way a lot of a lot of us are seeing money, and as you put it, the money game. So, thank you for for bringing that to the table here. As as one final question, or just I'm just going to open the floor for anything that you may want to share with our audience. If people want to get in touch with you, you can share some contact information as well. Floor is yours. Any final words for for the people who are listening to the Revenue with Real Estate podcast? Um, honestly, if anybody wants to you know, get offline with me, connect with me on how they, you know, might learn a little bit more or even find out about my courses or anything that I'm doing. Um, or even just ask, you know, pick my brain. I'm happy to meet with people, 10, 15 minute phone calls and help give them some direction. hundred um, percent. I will um, give you the link for you to add it in after. <laughs> sure. Sounds good. We'll include that in the show I didn't notes. realize. Yeah. You know what I'll do is uh, I'll just create a Calendly call just for this event. Sure. Um, and then I'll just pop it into my Calendly appointment and then they can, uh, they can just book a time. So, cool. um, so yeah. So if you want to go to the Calendly link and uh, click on that, put your information in, select a time that works for you. I'm happy to jump on a quick call and uh, see where I can help for sure. Right on. Danielle, thank you so much for joining me on the show. This has been a real pleasure. I'm glad that we got to do this. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank you for your time and and for making a, a place for our podcast in your day. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here, Doug. Thank you again for having me. Thank you for listening to the Revenue with Real Estate podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Just a couple of more things before you take off. If you want to learn more about Revenue, you can check us out at Revenue.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. On YouTube at Revenue with Real Estate, Facebook Revenue with Real Estate, or on Instagram at Revenue Canada. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, or anything that you want to share with us here at the show, please send us an email to info at revenue.com. Revenue with Real Estate, helping you understand the real risks and rewards of profitable real estate investing so that you can lead a life that you love. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to welcoming you to the Revenue with Real Estate community. 